This is a Federal News Network podcast. People trying to cross the southern border illegally make most of the news these days, but the Customs and Border Protection also apprehends illegal entrants, those with four legs or maybe no legs at all. People constantly attempt to smuggle animals of all sorts into the United States. With how they do it and what happens when they get caught, we have two supervisory CBP agricultural specialists, Ginger Perone and Robert Ford. Good to have you both on. Thank you. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. All right. So this interview was prompted by something I read. I think the CBP put out a release that someone had tried to smuggle small birds that were tucked neatly into hair curlers into the United States, and you found those. Tell us how often this happens and what kinds of things you see. Ginger? There's actually a seasonality to the finches specifically, where annually in the springtime we do see an uptick of those particular birds, and part of it's due to sort of the cultural environment around why they're being imported. Other forms of wildlife, it's less seasonal, but specifically the finches that you're speaking of, it is a sort of recurring. I guess the motivation isn't that important so much as they try to bring finches in. And are these a species that should not be in the United States the same way you don't let certain vines and live plants and so forth in? They're not endemic to this area. They're more of a tropical species in and of themselves. So they're not really meant to be in, especially, you know, the New York area where we see them regularly. But any avian importations come with disease risk. So it's not even specific to these species, but really all live bird importations have risks. Yeah. And Robert, what else do you see from time to time? I guess snakes and that sort of thing, reptiles? Generally here, here at JFK, I myself have seen a number of um, giant snail seizures, both aquatic and land snails. Those would both be associated with, you know, with the exotic pet trade. I've also seen some very large insects, rhinoceros beetles. Generally speaking, those are about the size of your hand. You'll see passengers also bring those for exotic pets. Wow. So sometimes then the uh, motivation is not so much cultural with related to springtime events, but a profit motive. They want to sell them here. In some cases, yes. In other cases, specifically with the snails, sometimes the intent is for them to be dinner very shortly after their arrival. Other times they are meant to just be somebody's pet, too. Yeah, so if you want to eat the snails, cook them ahead and then bring them home that way. That's all right, I guess, right? That is the case, yes. And then plants, of course, people try to bring in all the time fresh vegetables and I mean, the forms when you fly are pretty clear. You can't bring in plants, but people do anyway, don't they? You know, for the vast majority of the traveling public, people aren't trying to break the rules specifically. But everybody wants that piece of home, that taste of home, something to remind them of home, whether it's a mango that was grown on their property or whether it's a piece of the family fig tree to grow here in the U.S., Unfortunately, much like most animals, plants that aren't intended to be here in the U.S. can very quickly become a problem, whether they either bring in plant diseases of their own or bring in plant pests that ride along with them. Generally speaking, if it's not intended to be here, it really is a problem if it arrives here. Yes, and we've seen some of the issues they can cause, plants and animals that get released here. Next thing you know, the Great Lakes are in danger. Yes. Something that many people might be more familiar with is the various issues down that Florida has with um, invasive species, whether it's um, various invasive plants in the Everglades, 
to, again, giant African snails and even iguanas in South Florida. Yikes. We're speaking with Robert Ford and Ginger Perone. They are supervisory agricultural specialists at Customs and Border Protection. And Ginger, what happens when you discover something in someone's luggage? Well, first of all, what gives you the sense they might be smuggling animals in the first place? As far as live animals, a lot of it's intelligence-based and experience where it may be we have, you know, a tip or there's, you know, known associate or something in that regard. But also, you know, with something like the finches, the seasonality of it, we know when it's more common. Sure. Does it tend to be in the luggage or in the carry-on? An animal can't survive in the cargo hold, can it? Um, I've seen both ways. Generally, they don't arrive in great condition, regardless of how they're being smuggled in. These are, you know, very small, somewhat delicate animals. And unfortunately, frequently, some do arrive deceased because of the conditions of them being smuggled. So it's not any one, uh, one way or the other. So it's, it's kind of a case-by-case basis where it's hand-carried, checked luggage. It can be either. Yes. Do you ever get tips or suspicions relayed by flight crews? Maybe somebody tried to feed a little corn into their bag to see if the finches would eat it on the way over. Not so much something like, you know, oh, we saw them trying to feed them, but I have gotten where they've been heard. You know, they are live animals and they do tweet, but not so much, you know, where they've been seen or the package had been, you know, inadvertently opened on the aircraft or something like that. Audible tips I have gotten. (laughs) Yeah, I guess that's the advantage of snails. They don't speak very loudly. And what happens, uh, Robert, when you discover them? What do you do with these animals and critters? It kind of depends on what it is that we find. In all regards, they're initially safeguarded. They won't be allowed to leave the port of entry. So we can contact veterinary services. And from there, they'll undergo some sort of quarantine and after that, they can end up in a number of places, anywhere from a rescue, or they can be euthanized. So there's a number of things that could potentially happen to a particular animal that's being smuggled in. Sure. Do people ever try to bring in their own actual pets, like dogs and cats, which I think you can't just blithely bring over either, correct? Yes, people can bring their pets all the time. You would need to contact the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture. They have rules regarding most pets that you would want to bring with you when entering and leaving the country. And the vast majority require a quarantine of some kind. It can be and um, generally just some paperwork, you know, making sure that they've been properly vaccinated. You know, there are means to legally bring your pets into the country. Got it. But getting back to the imported things that are not really pets, like the snails, those, I imagine, would be euthanized. Maybe you could drop them into a bucket of vodka. That would probably be good for a snail and pickle it at the same time. You're not far off on how that happens. (laughs) (laughs) Snails are identified through their shells, actually. So there's no need for the live animal. So we do have to relax the snail to get the snail to be able to be removed from its shell. So um, we do more or less make escargot to get the snail out of the shell so that we can send the shell in for identification. And usually the snail itself is euthanized in the process. Yeah, poor thing. And at the major airports that are international, you're speaking from JFK, but I imagine Atlanta and Miami and a few others, Dallas, does CBP have dedicated facilities to take care of contraband animals and plants? It varies port by port. 
you know, sublocation like terminal by terminal, but we do have dedicated quarantine facilities. We have facilities to dispose of contraband, dedicated spaces to, you know, safeguard the live animals to mitigate any risk of escape or potential disease spread or anything like that. All right, and here's a final question to both of you, and Ginger, we'll start with you. What is the strangest living thing that is not plant, let's say animal, that you've ever experienced someone trying to bring in? The strangest living things? Yeah. Hmm. I'd probably have to say some of the varieties of live shellfish, clams and mussels and some of them are pretty unusual, especially when you're used to, you know, sort of prepared Italian dinner style seafood. Um, yeah, not the kinds of things you'd want to throw into the linguine. <laughs> There's some pretty interesting varieties of shellfish that I've come across. Okay. And uh, Robert, what about you? I'd have to go back to the giant rhinoceros beetle I found a few years ago. It's very disconcerting to run into an insect that's actually the size of your hand loosen a uh, parcel of mail that somebody's sending to somebody else. It's uh, it's very disconcerting to see that when you open the box. Yeah, I imagine that's worse than a tarantula. It's actually bigger than a tarantula, <laughs> so it's a very big bug. Yeah, you could almost stage a miniature-sized King Kong and Godzilla with the tarantula and the rhinoceros beetle maybe sometime. That's, that's another story. Robert Ford and Ginger Perone are Supervisory Agricultural Specialists at Customs and Border Protection. Thank you for being on the job so diligently, and thanks for this interview. Thank you. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, You think about a pandemic, for example, that has placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic, 
in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions uh, on, those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina. Uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have uh, my willingness to to fight for change, and that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there've been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, the 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 massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina. A very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life, and and it conjured up again these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy and now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life, and what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big I have a dream speech. 
But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges is seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees and, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet, or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the Secretary of Commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular common everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me. If there was some advice and counsel I could give is to continue to do your work. But, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick. Thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. 
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.